high. Katie insisted we did that together. Well, I went high and you went low, though, on the last high. That's fine. Okay. Welcome to our I, Tonya companion podcast, the one we've been so excited about showing you all. Firstly, thank you to everyone who joined us for the live and for the live watch along. Wasn't it such a, an amazing first go at it? Yeah, it was so fantastic. It was such a lovely evening. It really felt like a shared experience. It was sort of everything that we wanted it to be. So thank you so much, everyone who came and shared photos and really great comments and insights. And it just felt like such a nice little movie club. Yeah, it was exactly what we were hoping for. I think that's the, the main thing. So we really wanted to do a companion podcast with every film that we show because often when you watch a film, there's extra bits of information or facts that you might want to find out. Part of the fun of watching movies is getting to talk about it afterwards and also answer any questions anyone had while we were watching the film. And this time we had such a good interview with a journalist called Sarah Marshall. She is just such an expert on the subject. She wrote a fantastic essay in 2014 about the Tonya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan incident, as they describe it in the film. And she also co-hosts her own podcast called You're Wrong About, and that covers topics in history that people have misremembered. And one of the things they covered was Tonya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, which leads us very nicely onto the film because there's a lot of it in the film which is very different to how it was portrayed at the time. And it was so great to have Sarah to talk the film through with because she's such an expert on the topic and we covered everything from the class divide in America to racial politics to the appalling treatment of Tonya by the press and the public. So it's just a really great listen. And at times during the conversation, I actually forgot that we were hosting the podcast. I was listening to her as if I was listening to a podcast. So... <laughs> So we really hope you enjoyed the chat that we had and we started off by asking Sarah how she really got into the subject of Tonya Harding. I really loved that we had produced this Olympic figure skater who hunted and drove trucks and ATVs and was considered a tomboy and I guess had this sense of like kind of fondness for her as someone who was clearly like amazing at the sport that she competed in and was like, you may not like me for your own arbitrary reasons, but like, I, you still have to recognize that I'm better than anyone else on a good night. And growing up didn't really look particularly into the story of her alleged crimes. And it was 2010, I had a bunch of new friends who had moved to Portland for grad school. And I was like, I want them to know what Portland is really about because it's becoming this trendy city. And I'd be like, well, you know, Portland is really the city of Tanya Harding. And then I would explain that. And then that caused me to, to start researching her. And then I just really couldn't look away because her public legacy was so comedic. And she was looked on as this hilarious, scandalous figure who was in tabloids and liked it and loved the, you know being in the limelight in a way that clearly meant that people hated her. And the more I looked at that, the more I was like, I just think that we've all been wrong about this woman in this story, you know, we're seeing this as a comedy, but I think it's a tragedy. And then I became kind of obsessed with understanding that and then communicating it in a way that people would listen to because, you know, there were a lot of people who didn't take her seriously and also like hated her. And that just that drove me crazy, too, because like you can bring up like an actual murderer and people will 
feel less of a need to like spit on the ground at times than if you bring up Tanya Harding. And that also seemed very weird to me. You wrote your piece in 2014 and then uh, the movie came out in 2017. Do you think that her, her public image in the US has been rehabilitated somewhat now? Oh yeah, yeah, I do. And I think that the movie was so important partly because Margot Robbie is so lovable. And I think that she gave such an amazing performance in that movie. She was playing Tanya at 15 years old in parts, and I believed it. She had that like teenage vulnerability. And I think just she really expressed that character in a way that was easier for people to read than if they were watching images of the scandal at the time as, as someone who's vulnerable and who has feelings and who maybe puts up a barbed exterior because she expects to be hit. And I also think that, yeah, the, the climate has changed. And the fact that, you know, if a woman was embroiled in a scandal now that involved her being accused of being part of a plot to commit violence against someone, and there was information readily publicly available about her husband being abusive to her, I think that we would take that more seriously. I think that we have enough voices in the public arena now that take abuse and allegations of abuse seriously, that that would at least be part of the conversation in a way that it really wasn't in 1994. From my perspective and our perspective, watching the film as Brits who, you know, around that time, you know, we were only a couple of years old, really. We weren't really aware of the story as it happened. We didn't um, have this preconceived notion of who Tonya was. So when you watch the film almost like with fresh eyes, you're sort of shocked to see how she could have been portrayed in that way because it seems unimaginable. It's almost actually like having a fresh jury that hasn't been contaminated by media portrayals. Like most Americans are just useless jurors on the subject of Tanya Harding because if they lived through the events and are like, oh no, I'm supposed to hate her. I will never forget that my parents had a friend who like, at the time I was writing this article, they were like, oh, what are you working on, Sarah? And I explained it. And this friend of theirs was like, I'm not reading it. She gets like, had decided that Tanya Harding was evil and that it would be wrong for her to read something that would potentially challenge that belief, which is just fascinating. I could write a whole other essay on that, but... <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think that, that really speaks to where we are politically as well, I guess, on both sides of the Atlantic. I wanted to also talk to you uh, specifically uh, sort of on the theme of your own podcast that you host about misremembering historic events. What do you find most interesting about how people misremember these things? When we started making it, we we're like, okay, we want to do this show about things where we thought we knew what was going on, but really the facts show that like the reverse was in fact true. And we were like, oh, I hope we can keep doing this for a few months. Like there must be a finite number of these things. And at this point, what we figured out is that we remember everything wrong publicly we are wrong about everything in some way or another, because every event that occurs that is in the news in a major way. And as you can imagine, we have, you know, had so many people just on Twitter being like, oh, can't wait for your show on coronavirus. And it's like, yes, and we will make it in 20 years, because that's how long it will take to figure out who knew what when, and who could have done something differently when and how. 
we don't know that today. We're going to know it 20 years from now. So to an extent, I think the problem is that whatever we find out about an event as it's ongoing um, and one that affects us or that we feel affects us in some way, we're only going to learn the information that's available at the time, which is going to be, you know, minuscule compared to what we're capable of learning later. And we're going to absorb it in a way that's heavily biased in favor of us maintaining our own fictions. Our ability to absorb information is challenged by the fact that we are a part of that information. That's such a, <laughs> a great way of putting it, actually. And it's, it's so difficult to get the distance while you're living through it, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. My hope is that this is going to really rob many of us of our ability to judge people that we learn about as part of historical events, because we now have seen like universally what we do when we, we know logically what the situation is. So there was a couple of other points that I was really keen to talk to you about, one of which was um, the U.S. class divide that is quite prominent, I think, in the film and the way that Tonya was at least shown in the film as always constrained by her upbringing and her background and the fact that people looked down on her and then Nancy Kerrigan's held up as the elegant all-American dream. And I was really wondering whether you think any of that has changed or is it the same now? Has anything moved on in the last sort of 20 odd years? Oh, I hope so. I mean, once again, I think that those attitudes are still very present and very entrenched. And I think the difference is that the public conversation has become more diverse. I think it's like a, a public discourse should be like a gut, like there should be many different bacteria in there or else you're in trouble. And so, you know, the language um, that describes them at the time, you know, in the 90s is just so obviously coded like there's a lot of descriptions of nancy being a lady and she's elegant and it's like okay <laughs> there's literally a rolling stone profile of tanya harding in 1994 where it insinuates that it is trashy that she has called the police to report that her husband was assaulting her i will never <laughs> get over that rolling stone you know was as influential a magazine as existed at the time and as far as I know, that didn't cause any controversy. People were like, yeah, we want to hate this person. Like, that's, let's construe just anything about her as a reason to hate her. And what's, you know, what also is really fascinating about that to me and what I went into in my podcast about Tanya Harding, uh, less so in the article, is that Nancy Kerrigan also grew up in a working class home. And many years after the Olympics, her brother actually went to trial for, I believe, the manslaughter of their father because he had been choking him during an argument and their father, Dan Kerrigan, had had a heart attack and died. And so you look at, at that event in the household, again, once the children are all grown up and uh, many years after Nancy's competitive career has ended, you still look at it and you're like, they were a family too. Like there was complexity. There, there might've been some significant struggles during the years that Nancy was competitive and they were being featured. The fact that we didn't hear about it at the time doesn't mean that, you know, the Kerrigans were this paragon of um, American familial bliss just because that's what we really wanted them to be. I think they were able to maintain a unified front for the public and they were rewarded for that. Yeah, and it was like she was able to fit that ideal picture of what a woman should be, what an ice skater should be, 
whereas Tonya wasn't for, you know, for whichever, you know, whatever reason. Which is also so funny because like, you know, you look at her in her competitive days and you're like, she looked great. Like she never didn't look great. Like her costumes were fun. They always had lots of glitter, which is like a must. I think her body looked fantastic. Nancy fit this very specific image of what we wanted our skaters to look like. She actually looked a lot like Peggy Fleming, who had been, I think, the only American either to win a gold medal or to win any kind of medal at the 1968 Olympics. She was tall for a skater. She was very slender. She was also very muscular and a very athletic skater, but you couldn't see you you couldn't see her strength the way that you could see it on Tanya's body. But like Tanya was like, she was ripped. She looked great. And we just like didn't appreciate it. <laughs> I agree. Like sort of watching clips of her now, especially because again, today we have a different perception of what a woman's body can be, should be, or is allowed to be. And yeah, I just look at her and think, whoa, she just got so much power in those jumps. That's amazing. And I mainly just look at her as powerful. And, she, and the funny thing is, even, you know, she doesn't look masculine at all. So it's crazy that she sort of had these very, very draconian, strict rules placed upon her, um, or, you know, in her body, and which is not something that she could have ever changed. Right. And it really, I think one of the, the things that I think allows people to empathize with her now too, is that that experience is so similar to just the experience of being a woman in the world and having the experience of having your body sort of continually policed in your family, in the media, in everyday interactions, just sort of as a social being. And, you know, inevitably it getting to the point of like, okay, but like many of these things are things I cannot change. So like, am I being told to just like not exist in some coded way, like what, or to just not go out? Like, I guess it's not an issue now, but like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, what are you telling me? Like the only way for me to succeed is to just not force you to see me, which like, it's hard to do if you're an athlete. Mm. Yeah. And it makes me think of people like Serena Williams, who is such a symbol of a powerful athletic woman, but it makes you think if she hadn't have had such success in her career and wasn't undoubtedly the best female tennis player ever, would she have been treated a lot more harshly because of the way she looks? You know, people often use terms, you know, to talk about her, you know, she's very aggressive, she's very this, that, you know, it's all, again, that kind of masculine terminology. Um, and it's just interesting. I do wonder if it would be different for her if she wasn't such a, a winner. I actually think that there's something similar happened with Surya Bonali in the 90s who was black, which is very unusual for a figure skater at the time, who was also very muscular like Tanya and who just was similarly policed because she didn't really fit in. And she was, you know, she would continually be kind of bottom or just off of the podium, like sixth, seventh place. She would place sometimes lower than skaters who had like made mistakes when she hadn't just because her presentation scores were consistently low because judges were just like, oh, she, she's really good, but like we, we don't want to encourage her <laughs> to be. I don't, I mean, I mean, again, I don't understand the logical conclusion of that, but like, I just don't know where else it goes. It just strikes me as the most horrific bullshit that a sport can <laughs> exist that operates on these parameters 
that if you don't fit the mold, you don't win the competitions. And I'm sure you might have some some insight into that as someone who has a, a lot of knowledge about it. But I can't quite get my head around the fact that if you know your outfit doesn't doesn't fit what the judges might be expecting you might not win even though you might clearly be the best person at skating i mean it's a combination of athleticism and pageantry the scoring changed uh i believe after the 2002 olympics but at the time you know you had your score for your athleticism for your skating for your jumps and and spins and you had your presentation score which was you know deportment use of the rink music you know, your appearance generally. So like if judges were just like, yeah, I don't love it. Like just, and in a way that they couldn't necessarily articulate it, like the presentation score, that's where they tell you what they think of you. (laughs) And that could fluctuate pretty subjectively and dramatically. It's a fascinating thing. I mean, I think gender is policed through all sports in some way or another. And I think racial politics are present in all sports, but figure skating is really, I think, I can't think of a sport that allows for such incredibly rigid and specific policing of gender roles within it. Do you think that the fact that sort of Tonya knew she was always going to be up against it in all of those other categories, do you think that's what pushed her to be so good and to be able to be the first woman to do that triple axel in competition? I do. And I think she knew that the axel was her ticket out of the lower ranks that she was being kept in partly because of presentation scores there were issues like she got a really bad perm once and so she had to cut most of her hair off and so she has this like awkward haircut during some of her competitive years and like i don't think she wasn't getting scored on that to some extent like she couldn't afford that many outfits even if you're an economically comfortable family, skating is such an expensive sport and was during the years that she was competing. And so to really have no stability at home, no financial or often emotional cushion to fall back on and to still be competitive, like that's, I don't know, it's incredible. The lack of support she had is incredible. The harshness of the judging over just like things that were completely unrelated to her athletic ability is incredible. And I think that she recognized and her coaches recognized that like if she could do something that no other American woman could do, they couldn't argue anymore that like she didn't deserve to be up there as one of the best. You know, if you're a runner, then like no one can give you a silver if you cross the finish line first. And I think that that was a way for her to access kind of a more objective realm of scoring. And it worked briefly. (laughs) And then I think what happened is that People got a little nervous about her winning so much. And you could see the novelty of the jump wearing off on scorers. And also she stopped being able to land it consistently. Do you think that that, it became a bit of a millstone for her, both in terms of the pressure of having to land it and also, like you said, the novelty of it wearing off? I do, yeah. I mean, there's really interesting footage um, from 1991 Worlds where she had just won the national championships Everyone thought Christy Yamaguchi was going to win. It was her year, and Tanya won instead. And American sports writers at the time kind of suggest this position that, like, you know, Christy really earned it. And then Tanya came in with this, like, novelty that made the judges have to give her the high score. And it was kind of wrong. And it's like, 
okay, all right, we just hate her, is that it? And so they competed at Worlds, um, and Christy Yamaguchi did win at Worlds that year, and Tanya won silver. And during an exhibition skate, which is just after the competition, you got to do something fun, she had attempted, and I believe not managed her axle in the exhibition, and the crowd was like, do the axle, we want you to do it. And she basically like tried to get her breath back because she was asthmatic and made a couple of attempts. They don't want to let her off the ice unless she does it. I mean, she's she lands this in competition for the first time and is made famous by it when she's 20 years old, which is just so young. And I think that it would be just such a complicated experience to like do this thing that forces people to recognize your talent. And then you're like, okay, you like me now. Can you like other stuff I do? And they're like, no. <laughs> I just wanted to ask if you had any stories in particular that you were excited about for you're wrong about. I, in times of stress, find it weirdly calming to read about other disasters. Or I guess like we're having a disaster right now. So I like to read about other disasters. And by that, I mean like a fire or a cave-in at a mine or or an epidemic. I am the kind of person who has spent, you know, the last 20 years reading about epidemics in her free time. And so I find that pretty paradoxical, but I also know that I'm not alone. And so I think we may or may not do this, but I think I want to do some episodes on the Titanic, which has been an interest of mine for a while. But yeah, I think there's something about you know whether you're you're experiencing a disaster at the moment or not, studying examples of disasters where the worst possible thing has happened and you get to see how people and systems react and how the worst and the best is inspired in people. Like there's something maybe reassuringly informational about all that. And if you want to listen to Sarah's podcast, You're Wrong About, make sure that you check that out on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it is that you get your podcasts from. Now we've come towards the back end of the podcast, we wanted to do a little bit of extra bits and bobs, one of which was any sort of further reading if you're interested in either the Tonya Harding story or the themes from the film. First and foremost, if you're interested in the Tonya Harding story, I can't recommend Sarah's essay enough. We'll put a link to that in the podcast description. She um, and her co-host Mike have also done uh, a two-part podcast about Tonya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. We will also link to that. And if you're interested in the theme of the persecution of prominent women, I could seriously recommend the Amy Winehouse uh, documentary from Asif Kapadia, which is just superb. And it's a, another way of telling a similar story, but with even more tragic consequences. And thank you so much to everyone who has listened to the podcast and everyone who came to the live screening with us. It's just been so nice to hear from everybody and really get lots of input on the film and people's thoughts about it. And I'm really glad we were able to introduce the film to some people who hadn't seen it, but also hear from people who were watching it a second time. And I hope everyone really felt the benefit of that group viewing. So we're gonna be doing another film club this Friday, the 27th of March, and we will be announcing which film uh, we're going to be hosting on our Instagram <laughs> on Monday night. There's been lots of people trying to get that out of us already. Lots of uh, family members. Lots of little canoodlers trying to yeah. wheedle their way into, <laughs> into the inner workings, into the inner sanctum. But we will not be swayed 
Uh, no, you've already told your mum. Well, may, may have already told my mum, but that's that's by the by. <laughs> so we will be announcing to the world, world unveiling on Monday night, which film it is going to be. And so don't forget, Friday the 27th, same time, so 7.45 for the live, going into 8 o'clock for the live screening. And then we'll do a post-film chat, ideally at 10, depending if the film's a little bit longer, it might have to be slightly different to that obviously. Um, is there anything in particular you're looking forward to for this week's live experience? The last time was our first one and we, we were worried about the setup and how it was all going to work. So now we know that the format works. I'm looking forward to more just like relaxing and enjoying it. And I hope that we will have like the same level of discussion for this film. And I'm also looking forward to the fact that this film is going to be a bit lighter and more heartwarming in a way, although I don't want to give too much away. I'm looking forward to the bit in the film where the space aliens come down and melt everyone's faces off. <laughs> no, I'm joking. That's two weeks time. We've got to do all our plug-in now as well. Mm. We've got loads of different places that you can look at for more information. Um, you can join our mailing list through our website on travelingsymphony.com join. There you will also be able to find our Instagram and our Twitter, which is both at TSMovieClub and the link to join our Discord, which is where we host our live text chats for the live watch-alongs. Is there anything else I've forgotten? Nope, I don't think so. Obviously the podcast link, but you're yeah. listening to it, so, so well we, done we you. So we assume you found that. One step ahead of the game. But that's about it, I think. We'll be speaking to you throughout the week from all of our various channels and platforms. And we look forward to seeing you Friday for our second Travelling Symphony experience. Yay! <laughs> That's exactly what you did last time. Is it? Yes, you did that little, yay! Well, I'm just one trick pony. <laughs> <laughs> All right, time to say goodbye. Bye. 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 B